This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello everyone, it's your usual podcast host, Simone here, and I'm running this episode together with today's co-host, Stina Heikila. In this episode, we talk to Michelle Bowens, founder and director of the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, research director of the commonstrecision.org, a platform for policy development aimed toward the Society of the Commons, and a founding member of the Commons Strategies Group. Michelle is a real lighthouse when it comes to collaborative commons-based production models and works tirelessly since more than a decade in collaboration with a global group of researchers in the exploration of peer production, governance and property. In our conversation with Michelle, we explore both the epistemological and the political and regulatory layers of the transition from the old to the new ways of organizing society. We dig deep into concepts like transnational institutions, and we explore the changes we could expect in both regional and international governance of the economy and society. Are we witnessing a shift in consciousness and social coherence? If it's true that we are transcending Western concepts of modernity, what questions do exist with regards to the protocols and the governance mechanisms needed for the transition? How will our education and accounting systems cater for greater complexity and coherence? These are only a handful of questions that we explore in this conversation with Michelle. Don't forget that you can find all the references in the show notes. Enjoy the show. Michelle, it's such a pleasure to have you on this uh, podcast. We know each other, I think, from you know the early 2010, probably, something like that. So it's almost 10 years maybe more. And, um, you know, when I, when we started the, this podcast, we really wanted to, um, have the conversation on the, on the commons and peer to peer commons based production into this conversation, into this podcast. And, uh, you know, as you know, I am also personally, uh, very much passionate about these ideas of open source, for example, and open collaboration and based on the commons. So, so my question for you as a starting point, I would say to explore, uh, the world of uh, P2P commons based peace production is, is much more related to, um, trying to understand with you, uh, why this is not uh, as big as it should be, you know? And so what are the structural issues that, uh, um, as for your understanding, are harnessing the further development of these uh, paradigms in the world? Right. Well, I, I, I guess uh, to start with, I'd like to basically maybe even challenge what you just said, because, you know, you have to remember where we came from, right? We're... Basically, we just had open source uh, movements in the early 2000s. Now we have urban commons. And I did a study in Ghent, which showed a tenfold increase in urban commons from 50 to 500 in just one city. Um, That's one thing. Then we have the makerspaces, the fab labs, and something that's called the multifactory. There's about 120 of them. Uh, in Europe right now already, and this is like real production where craftspeople mutualize their you know production in a, in a common space using open source uh, principles. Um, so I just and, and and also I would like to say that there's already a lot more political expression of this, right? There is the 
the regulations in Italy in 250 different cities. There is uh, uh, a whole plank of activity in France around the uh, municipal elections and, you know, with, with a real commons political program at the local level. Um, so, of course, we're not where we want to be, but I, I just want to stress that we also have been growing at the same time, right? Um, so I, I just want to make sure that, that uh, this is said. For sure, um, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But so, I, you know, I, I think... Um, so, of course, one of the issues, and that's one of the statements we, we wanted to discuss, is is about the value regime, right? It's So my analysis is that we live in a world that only recognizes extractive value. So in other words, in order to create value, you either work with people or with natural resources, and you extract a surplus, and that surplus is, is translated in financial wealth. And then we are going to do philanthropy or we're going to do taxation. And so we're doing redistribution. And this this has a number of paradoxical effects. And, and one of the profound effects is that if you do generative work, if you do care work, you, you don't get funded unless uh, you get this redistributive money. Um, so typical example would be uh, you have uh, in France a community land trust called Terre des Liens. They have seven, 75 million euro in capital, and you know they buy land from the market, put it in a trust, and then they give cheap rent uh, and ecological contract with organic farmers. And they have already in 2016 published a report showing that the fact that they don't use toxic uh, pesticides. Uh, in their uh, form of uh, agriculture means that they're saving the French state 300 million euro per year. So that's, you know, amount of money in water pollution, depollution that is not spent because they do this generative activity. And I, I hope you can see the problem there, right? So if you're a farmer and you're destroying your soil year after year, and some studies say there's like 60 harvests left uh, in Western Europe, you know, if we continue with this uh, desubstantiation of minerals in our soils, um, so that you're going to be uh, basically getting, you know, billions in in uh, European funding from the agricultural program. But if you're an organic farmer, you're not going to get this. So there's a huge. So I, I want to say this is important because the commons, in some ways, an alternative to capital, but you still need capital. Um, so capital privatizes the commons. That's how capitalism emerged. Um, and so what, it, what, it, what people are doing right now, I would say, is using the commons as an alternative to capital because they don't have capital. right? So if you don't have capital, then you're going to use mutualization as an alternative. You're going to you know, this ha- com- combine idle sourcing, uh, combine many, many, many small contributions to try to to get that at a substantial amount of infrastructure. Um, And so why is this important? Because as long as the current system works, as long as the extractive system works, even if it is destructive, it kind of creates a a structural situation where generative activity is marginalized. And this is just, you know, a fact of life, right? Um, And... 
and and now if if you agree with me or maybe you don't agree with me that we are reaching a point of no return in the current system in other words uh, a continued extraction at this scale an overuse of the planetary resources at this scale uh, creates resource issues creates uh, future problems with food and water creates climate change um, and as we see nowadays creates a huge issue around pandemic uh, distribution um, so I would say that um, it might be that the time you know before these alternatives be, you know become more important is not so far away as we think uh, now, so the first argument would, would be around structural weaknesses for me is the value regime, right? In which value regime are we operating and what is it favoring and what is it disfavoring? Um, the second issue, though, I think is that we live in a hybrid economy, in a hybrid society. So we have different ways of exchanging value. We have pricing, the pricing system, which, you know, only is dominant for the last two centuries. It wasn't before. It was a. It was itself marginal until two centuries ago. You know, we had maybe ten percent people in the cities and ninety percent people in in the countryside who were almost not affected by by the pricing system. Uh, we have the gift economy, which is, I think, quite marginal. Then we have commoning, which is working on a shared resource, and then we have uh, redistribution. So those are four different ways of exchanging value. And I think one, one of the critiques, uh, you know, like a self-critique we could make of the commons movement is the idea that it's a, a, that it's a totalistic alternative, right? So I, I would argue differently is that the commons on its own is not sufficient, just as the market on its own is not efficient, sufficient and the state on its own is not efficient. Even more so, I would argue that believing this is a form of totalitarianism so you'd have fascism and communism as you know an absolute absolutism of the state we have the right-wing libertarianism and neoliberalism as a absolutism of the market we also could have communism as some kind of absolutism of you know of horizontality um, and so i think it's much more fruitful to think of combinations in other words if you're a market player, you could start thinking, you know, how can we use the commons? And actually, of course, we see that capitalists is actually doing that, right? I mean, all the new, the things that you do with uh, your platforms, and, and you know, normally the most of the platforms are capitalistic, what I call netarchical platforms. They, that's exactly what they're doing. They have become commons extract, extracting uh, economic systems. They directly you know get value from cooperating humans right they no longer so if you look at uber airbnb they no longer just hire people to produce they actually does exchange and then they get a tax from our exchanges broadly speaking um so capitalism is certainly doing that and, and so what i've been suggesting for the last 10 years is that commoners should do the same uh, one, of, one of the historical theories about capitalism is that it emerged in Europe because we had, you know, medieval cities, free medieval cities where the, the merchant guilds 
uh, had autonomy, uh, which didn't happen in any other uh, region in the world, because all, always the market forces were subsumed and dominated by the empires and the and the royal, uh, the monarchic forces. But in Europe, we had a distributed system, a fragmented system of power in the Middle Ages, and that allowed the merchant classes to slowly create a world that worked for them, right? And so basically what, I'm, what I've been suggesting is that commoners should do the same. It's that we should be thinking not about, you know, doing it on our own, you know, 100% pure way, but we should be thinking what kind of markets work for commoners? What kind of state form works for the commons? Mm -hmm. um, that, that's, how, yeah. that's Sorry, I, I interrupted you. But no, no, no I problem. To, I, I was ending. I want to yeah. bring you some, some further reflection that uh, reconnects with some also some older interviews that we have been recording the last few days. Um, so, 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 for example, when you say that the commons doesn't need to be a total, totalistic also, um, you know, approach uh, that uh, somehow uh, we need to do it alone outside of the, the society of, of markets, but more something that can appear on top of existing markets. Yeah. Uh, it, it reminds me uh, with uh, it reminds me about the David Ronfeld um, uh, tribes, institutions, markets, and networks. Yes. So this this idea that essentially they evolve on top of each other, and this is something that uh, uh, we also had the chance to discuss quickly with uh, John Robb a few few days ago, and uh, and if I connect this with your remarks at the start that um, it's a value issue, no? So so you say you know as long as we have extractive value. It's hard to, to imagine that um, you know that something different comes up. As long as society, you know, somehow praises this kind of extractive approach, and and this is really interesting. I think. I mean, when you say, for example, care work is not funded, uh, it makes me think about um, Bernard Siegler's Neganthropocene idea. You know, that care needs to become central, and and so somehow this brings us this reflection that. If we don't see more uh, commons-based uh, production, it may also be an epistemological problem. We may also be uh, dealing with this idea of, uh, you know, uh, as Heidegger said, you know, we face the world in, uh, as, as a standing reserve that we just want to consume, basically. We just can't think about consuming. So it's the, the, this big, this huge epistemological issue related to science and rationalism and so on. So this is a, one of the big issues. And on the other hand, there is a political issue because when you say, you know, basically, uh, if this transformation needs to come on top of existing institutions and markets, it means that we need to take it politically. We need to have a political discussion on, on how we run our markets and, and what kind of production we, we, we I would say, we encourage with our policies. So, so there are these two topics. And... You also mentioned the point of no return. So at some point, we, we're going to figure out that if it doesn't change, uh, we're going to have very hard times. And we're already living through hard times. You mentioned the pandemic. We, it's crazy today. We are all, the three of us, uh, at some level of lockdown. You know, you, you're locked down in a room because you are finishing your quarantine. And, and me and Stina, we are locked in our houses in Paris and Rome. So I feel like the point of no return is somehow it's already here no? for, for some reasons. But uh, so, so the question is, how do you see that happening? So, so uh, is the epistemological 
transformation really key and uh, is this uh, aspect of uh, cosmology and integrating the technology and and the cosmological vision as we are seeing for example in, in China somehow uh, is this something needed this is something that you see happening how do you see that unlocking you know is it a political yes, yes. passage or are you epistemological yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so let, let me give you some examples so i i just finished writing uh, an essay which i really happy about it's called the pulsation of the commons and so i've been looking at different schools of thought like biophysical economics and uh, cliodynamics the, which is a historical school um and the convertive cycles and uh double movement of Karl Polanyi. And they all come to a very similar conclusion, which is basically saying that history moves in, in waves, in, pulsa- in a pulsation. Um, so you have extractive moments in history, and then you have regenerative reactions. And typically for a regenerative reaction is the revival of the commons. Uh, so in... in uh, um, you know, 10th century, 11th century Europe, in 12th century Japan, in 15th century China, uh, what you see is that, you know, the extractive regime has done so much damage that there is a, a, a huge popular revolt that in that time takes on a religious and, and spiritual language. Um, and... Um, so basically, you know, we can take Japan also in the 16th century, it happened again. Um, so you have like a completely deforested country, uh, which have been subject to civil war. And then, uh, you know, so many people have died and, and then the shogun takes power. And for three centuries, Japan has succeeded in creating, it's called the Togukawa period, a, a, a nation that lives within its regional planetary boundaries and it has a stable population. So it can be done, right? It, it, it's actually possible to have a civilizational form that lives within natural boundaries with a stable population. It's, 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 it's been done in the past. Um, and so that, that's, that's like something that you see uh, happening uh, all the time. Um, so, for example, I was reading a book. It's called The First European Revolution. It's in nine, So in 975, uh, after the period of castellization and, you know, all these uh, f- uh, feudal lords are fighting and killing each other and, and raping their, their, the women in, in their population and everything and stealing the gold from the churches, you have the monks and the people organizing demonstrations and within 70 years, the whole of European society has changed. And so this kind of pulsation between extraction and regeneration is, is not, is not unusual. It's actually, I would say, the rule. Now, with capitalism, because technology, because of oil, you know, we, we kind of thought we were out of it, right? We, we, we thought we escaped this. Um, but, this is no longer the case. We we can't escape it. We you know we use four or five planets, uh, so we use five times more resources than the Earth can regenerate. Uh, we have climate change. Um, so basically, I believe we have now reached that point on a global scale. Um, now there is a difference between Asia and Europe. In Asia, in Europe, we already. Um, have at least one-third of the population in Europe that questions all the ideals of modernity. 
So there's already kind of a mutation in consciousness. I would say in Asia, they are still much more believing in the system than they think finally they can get there, right? So they, so the, I would say that the, the majority of the people in Asia believe in capitalism and that a majority of the people in Europe are losing their faith in capitalism. Um, and so you see all these people changing how they do health, how they do, you know, think about young people in work today. I mean, this is a real issue where most young people cannot find meaning in a traditional job, right? They, they want something else. They want, uh, to live other values. Um, so I would say in general, uh, that we actually see, uh, a mutation of consciousness and let me end with one example because I, I think it's important so mutation in consciousness is not it's not just a continuation of the old so when we have the christians coming after the roman empire in the roman empire work is for slaves work is something bad it's something that a free person doesn't have to do but in the christian world in the feudal world um so you have to pray and work at the same time. So actually working is transforming the world, is making the world a better and more divine place. So that's a complete, a complete shift in consciousness. And I think today a lot of people want to care for the earth, want to, you know, want to be at the service of the planet. Um, and the system hasn't yet changed to make that possible. But I think the desire is already there. So, so we can say maybe that, uh, uh, for your understanding, we are witnessing the this epistemological change. Uh, so maybe it's the time to to see how it plays out at the political le level. Well, it, it it plays out. I think at the moment, first of all, with a total um, lack of trust in the institutions. Right, twenty uh, years ago, still seventy percent of the people were saying. I trust politicians, I trust doctors, I trust hospitals. Uh, today it's more like 17%. So they, I think the majority of the people do not, do not um, uh, see, a, have not a clear vision of the alternative, but they already have a clear vision of what they reject. And I, you probably remember this quote from Gramsci where it says, the old system is dying, but is not dead yet. And a new system is being born, but is not born yet. So it's a time of monsters. You know, it was a citation like that. And he was living in the same moment we're living now, because what the moment he was living is you, you had, in the 19th century, he had Smithian capitalism, which was a total domination of capital over labor. And where workers in the 1850s were, were dying at, at, at 30. Um, and... You know, World War One and World War Two were a transitional period where uh, two new regimes, fascism and communism, were competing to offer something new because the the old system wasn't working. Uh, and then we got a huge change, which was the the welfare system, right? So after 1945, we have a compact between capital and labor, and it creates, at least in the Western states, it creates a welfare state. Um, 
And what I'm the way I formulate this is that the change now is we need a compact with nature because the compact between capital and labor was done at the expense of nature by not recognizing externalities. And then, so politically, and, and this is one of the themes that we wanted to discuss, is so we have, an, an, we have a nation state system that's territorial. So people live in a territory. They, they like their locality, so at least some people do. They feel attached to their region. They feel a lot of people feel attached to their nation. Uh, and then we've built a multilateral system that is on top of that. And that is, so we had political and economic institutions like the IMF and the World Bank that were mediating mediating institutions. And they're not working anymore. They're not working well anymore. Then we have another world, which is the world that I think you and I work with, which is a transnational, translocal world, which is where people live in virtual territories. So let's say you do permaculture. So you at at some level you're local. You're you know you're doing your garden, but then when you communicate about permaculture, you're communicating with the global permaculture community. And in that world, the nation state doesn't even exist. It's just invisible. It's not part of your view, right? Um, and so that second world for me is the world that we're building with the commons, with with knowledge commons. Um, and so we talk about cosmolocal uh, global order, which is everything that's global is uh, everything that's light is global and shared, and everything that's heavy is local. Which is an alternative to both neoliberal globalization, which is a globalization of matter and people moving around the world all the time, and we spend three times as much on transportation than on making things now. Um, and then we have a world of national protectionism of, okay, let's keep the foreigners out. Let's do everything locally. And so what we're trying to present is a third view, right? Is a view of, uh, yes, we need to relocalize a lot of uh, our production. Because if you look at Corona, the reason we are such in a mess is that we have neoliberal just-in-time systems that are totally dependent on their weakest link. And then when China, you know, got in crisis, we didn't get our medications. Um, and there's no supply line to uh, to create the making of ventilators and masks. And, and so uh, we lost every resilience that we had in terms of like combating. Um, disruptions, yeah, systemic disruptions. Yes. So, uh, so what I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying is, is that the open source germ form shows how we can do it. We have a global cooperation of experts globally about ventilators, and then we need to find local places where we can make them. But we don't want what we don't want is isolate ourselves, you know, from the knowledge that's that's available in all of humanity. Thank you. I will uh, jump in with a question. I thought it was. Um... You already answered to some of the questions that I had, but um, I was reading um, the other day your, uh, a piece that you wrote in Liminal on the Corona and the Commons, and there were some interesting uh, remarks that you made about, you know, that uh, for sure the systems that we have are sort of failing, like the nation state and, and the multilateral system. There's a lack of trust that is growing, but still that things might have been even worse if we didn't have these 
systems in place because somehow they are serving their role. So I'm right. curious to hear about that yes. coexistence and how you see that that will pan out and what will be the frictions between the old and the new. And we, are ta- we talked about this combination as well. Yes, right. So I think we have a twofold problem. One, one is what we have, you know, weak common institutions. Uh, we don't have strong common institutions yet. And the other problem is that we have state forms which cannot cooperate uh, with with these commons, right? Um, and uh, I think Italy has given some examples of how this could be done, because after the Bologna regulation, uh, the regulation for the care and regeneration of the urban commons, you have 250 cities which took it over. And according to the calculation, between 800,000 and 1 million people who are involved in these projects. So, so you have there already what I call a partner state protocol, a public commons protocol. So you have in Italian cities a way in which citizens can do a project, can be recognized by the state and can be supported in you know, the, um, what they call the five uh, the quintuple uh, governance multi-stakeholder model. So this is a typical thing that exists in Italy, but doesn't exist uh, in other countries yet. And I think it's a good example of you know uh, how you can smooth the cooperation between those two worlds. And so we can see today with the uh, the coronavirus crisis, we can see a massive mobilization. Of open source communities, you know, with all the expertise that is needed to design ventilators and valves, but we also see that the governments are not ready or able to work with them. So there's several issues, uh, and of course, one of the issues is certification regulation, um, which should, you know, probably be relaxed in an emergency time because even if an alternative is not 100% effective it can still save a lot of lives that, that you can't if you don't have anything. Um, but you know, beyond just like emergency measures, what it shows us is that what is lacking today is the interface between the, the state and the civil society, the state and the commons. Uh, there, there is no interface. And I think that's a huge weakness on both sides. Because right now the state would, and, and so to, to also maybe say that uh, in a some more theoretical way, I think the state can see territory. It cannot see flows. Um, and so we need a partner state, with, which is not just the issue of, you know, being a partner with civil society and allowing civil society to be autonomous but it's also related to the ability of the state to see things and exactly to accept the fact that flows enrich the nation. I'm not sure that beyond the neoliberal market flows, commodity flows, that people in the state and traditional politicians are actually able to see how open source and make an internet and global maker spaces can enrich a territory can enrich, you know, the wealth of a nation state. I don't think they see that. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's, that's, that's a very important point uh, as, as from my, my understanding, because uh, uh, so far, I, I think uh, what we have been seeing in the last, uh, you know, basically from, from for, forever is that, um, is that, you know, gradual, um, it's a gradual, uh, something that you also mentioned, uh, this gradual integration of institutions up until we reach this uh, uh, supranational, let's say, multinational uh, yeah. transnational uh, state, you know, w with the UN, for example, uh, yeah. as a way to uh, somehow take over this uh, role of uh, uh, controlling and regulating. Uh, yes. And at the same time, what, uh, what we, you mentioned uh, is that uh, this, this trend basically disconnected the citizen from the policymakers and from the regulation yes. uh, regulatory process itself. Uh, on the other hand, maybe it's a good idea to 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 borrow um, Danish Machtenberger's um, considerations on uh, on the fact that when you have this uh, uh, huge power growing at the edge of the system, so where basically every nation state, but uh, at, you know, within time, I would say every uh, individual has a, a technological potential to, to create such a big harm, you know, for example, with uh, guerrilla, uh, like, you know, crypt, uh, sorry, um, uh, you know, basically biological warfare or like, yeah. like we said, you know, with witness said with the drone attacks to the Saudi plants, you know, a few yes. months ago. Yeah, that was amazing. Yes. <laughs> so the, the question is, when these, uh, uh, when these uh, uh, two uh, trends, let's say, uh, uh, generate this friction between each other, so the, the need to, to, to scale our need for a coherent uh, regulation, for example, at a multinational, transnational uh, level, and at the other hand, we have this need to uh, probably go back into a more uh, indigenous and local uh, context of uh, of uh, creating wealth and and managing the commons, um, are we left with uh, uh, some kind of uh, uh, you know conundrum that we cannot solve? That's that's my I, question. Yeah, I okay. I, I you know I, I I don't want to imply that it's easy, but I. So let, let's take the example with Karoma. So we we can criticize the state, and and there were many failures and and, and everything. But imagine that there is no state. Then, you know, in the U.S., you would have every state, uh, you know, the, one of the, the 50 states would be competing with each other. They wouldn't take into account each other. Um, one, one, one city would do social isolation and the other wouldn't. I mean, that's, that's not acceptable either, right? There, there's some, some challenges do require transnational frameworks. Um, and, and in some way, you could say that the nation state system already works that way. And, and that's not so bad. So the fact that the WHO you know, was able to advise, and it, it's, a trans, it's an international organization, and it is followed by a lot of states. Um, but it's an international expression, right? And I, I want to say something else, which is that the the regime that we are leaving it's you know it's weak multilateralism and it's only economic and political so the imf the world bank the united nations and the mediating institutions 
to keep the peace because before World War II, they didn't have them. And, and so they thought, you know, if we want to keep the peace, we need these mediation, mediating institutions. Now, one mediation, mediating institutions that I know we need right now is actually um, some institution that could protect planetary boundaries. And I've done a report last summer called P2P Accounting for Planetary, uh, what was it again? P2P Accounting for Planetary Survival. And the theme is that we need accounting tools, shared accounting tools that enable us to see the world differently and that, that allow us to see externalities. And of course, they are not externalities, but the economy, uh, our current economy sees these things as externalities. So they think the economy is the center and then these marginal things on the outside. But actually, the planet is primary. And, you know, we are guests. Uh, so we are actually at the edges in a certain way. And so that kind of reversal of perspective, I think, needs to be institutionally validated. And so one, one project that I really like and I think is totally on the mark is called Reporting 3.0. And one of their proposals is, is called the Global Thresholds and Allocations Council. This is a form of, uh, they call it multi-capital accounting. So you don't financialize, but we have to see the matter and energy flows in our systems. And so what they propose is basically that this, this group of scientists and experts, the Global Thresholds and Allocations Council, would be in charge of setting the limits in which states and individuals and companies and co-ops can, can operate, right? Because you, your freedom stops where you endanger the life of another. Um, and I think international is not good enough because if, let, let's take the human rights uh, issue, right? Where you have a UN Human Rights Council but then there's China and Saudi Arabia are members. And, and now human rights is very important, but it only affects some people. But the planetary survival affects everyone. And so this is, so the vision I have is to have this, is to have globally shared accounting platforms and shared supply chains where we can actually do stigma right? And that's that I would say is an institution of the open source movement that works very well in free software. And once we have accounting, we can also apply it to production. So that's a huge, a huge shift in perspective. Can you expand then, a little, uh, Michel, on how would you see stigma playing out in production? Yes, thanks to yes. This framework? So, so if we move to open collaborative systems, and I think the blockchain systems are already that, right? So that means like open source, everybody can come in and can leave at any time. So there is no single company that integrates the whole system, that dominates the whole system. It's an ecosystem and it's an open ecosystem. Um, so what we see in these ecosystems is sort of all contributive accounting, which is practiced by, by different open source systems, which is where you can recognize non-market generative activity as having its own value. So if you look at human history, uh, and Bernard Guettard talks about this in his book, The Mystery of Money, you know, he talks about yin and yang money, male and female, warm and cold currencies. 
So now we only have cold currencies, extractive currencies. He says we need to go back to the double system, which we had until the Middle Ages in the 14th century, which is we need warm currencies which recognize non-market generative care activities. Uh, so for example, in Indonesia, you have uh, money systems which regulates the watershed. People are paid to care for the watershed and they can use that, that currency. Um, so in the system that reporting 3.0 uh, proposes, this is more like a thermodynamic accounting system. But again, it's an open system so everybody can see. So the, the theory is the following. In order to be in, uh, in a steady state economy, so an economy that, that keeps the, the, the level of resources for the next generations, we cannot grow more than 1% a year, otherwise it's exponential. So basically you calculate, you know, like the, all the chemical elements of the table of Mendeleev and that already exists, you can find it online. The American Chemical Association follows the uh, flows of matter in these different elements. And so you'd have a commission of experts that would follow this, you know, how much is copper is there? How much copper do we expect to find every year? What's the biocircularity of copper? 70% uh, every time you use copper, you reuse it, you can only use 70% uh, of, the, of the copper. And, and that gives you boundaries, right? And within these boundaries, you're free, but you cannot cross those boundaries. And, and stigmagy is that if I, let's say I make shoes and I need leather, I can see all the other leather producers as well. And so I can adapt in real time my behavior uh, to the behavior of the ecosystem. And so there's another kind of accounting, it's called flow accounting, REA, resources, events, agents, which no longer has double entry. And, and this is an important point. So if you use double entry accounting, you only see what is coming in and out of your own entity. And it's, it's, a, it's a narcissistic accounting because the ecosystem doesn't exist for you. Once you have flow accounting, REA accounting, you see the whole 3D, 3D ecosystem. You see every transaction, how it fits in the 3D ecosystem. Now, I want to go one step further, if you don't mind, because what we want to avoid is eco-fascism, right? The kind of planned economy where everybody is rationed. So here's, a potential solution to this. Let's say you want to decarbonize. And what we do now in the neoliberal economy is to do everything with competitive bidding. Competitive bidding is anti-holistic because you win the competition by externalizing as much as you can. So you solve one problem, but you create others. In order to win, you have to be really reductionistic. Um, if you do um, a circle of finance. Uh, let me explain what that means. You create a public ledger. That public ledger allows every citizen, every collective to have its carbon decarbonization efforts to be verified. So you have it verified, you have it tokenized, and either through taxation or through contributions of those who profit from that positive externality, you fund these tokens and you create a, a, a circle. 
can be very easy. I'll give you an example for Belgium, a small city. 20% of the kids use a bicycle. So it creates pollution uh, because you know 80% cars, you create uh, traffic accidents, noise, everything. So this is okay. Let's pay, let's pay these kids mileage, a, a mileage based uh, currency. Uh, I forgot the name, but it, it's, you know, it exists in Bonheden. And let them then use that currency in the circular economy, in the local circular economy. So recycle, maker spaces, fab labs. So now they went to 60%. So considering cycling generative as compared to the extractive effect of cars, and, and you recognize it creates value. So you have a priority, but you leave people free to choose how they're going to do, you know, their, to use their creativity in answering those, those uh, societal challenges. I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think uh, maybe my, my last uh, question for this conversation today uh, or my last reflection that I want to offer, and maybe Sina wants to add more, but, um, you know, every time that we, we talk about, for example, uh, these uh, moving out of uh, competitive bidding into circular finance, and we speak about, you know, the need for institutional enforcing, uh, you know, multinational institutions to enforce these regulations, which is, you know, of course, uh, very meaningful. I find it very meaningful, but... Um, you know, for example, you will have uh, you will have witnessed that in the last few weeks there were lots of people talking about how corrupt is the World Health Organization. So uh, there is this issue, which I'm not saying that, you know, but I'm saying that a lot of people are are saying, you know, this are this is a corrupt institution. It's, it's not telling us, for example, that masks are useful, uh, and you know, because they wanna uh, they don't wanna make us, you know, freak out or something like that. So in general, I think the question on um, on potentially uh, um, potentially dealing with uh, the corruption of the institutions uh, and in general the non the, the, the capability the, the scarce capability to 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 work, you know, because of the complexity of the matter that they regulate, yeah, yeah, is yeah. is something that uh, makes should make us think about you know what is the other route. And when, when I was talking with John Robb, we were talking with John Robb a few days ago, uh, he made, us a uh, made a reflection with us and you know, basically saying, uh, I wanna be able to connect uh, with the global system on my own term, if I am you know, creating a local system, for example. No? If I'm caring about my resilience, I can connect with yes. the global system on my own terms. And, uh, and this is quite different as an approach, also as a, I would say an epistemological or political approach, you know, to, uh, you know, either we end up with these uh, multinational institutions that everybody trusts, which is, I believe, a very difficult, you know, a very improbable uh, outcome, or we may end up in these local institutions that uh, connect with uh, 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 within, you know, connect between each other on their, local, on the, on their uh, own terms. Uh, so maybe these connections that that we are going to create, these multinational inter internetworks and connections, are, are more like you know going to be um, produced yeah, as I, uh, I, tools. Yeah, yeah I, I think this is the the thing that 
you know, fundamentally libertarian people like John Rob don't get is, and this is actually the core of what I'm trying to tell you, is that you have the two. Right? We have living physical bodies and we live in the territory. Uh, and that theory is not just a local, it's, you know, it's a historically evolved situation where the communities that were destroyed by capitalism became the imagined community of the nation state. And we shouldn't underestimate the attachment of most people to this, to this identity, right? And we see actually today that forces that represent the revival of the nation state are, are winning. They're not losing, they're winning. And the people who, you know, usually on the left who don't feel this identity uh, with the nation state, they're losing. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the libertarian view, right? And it's all about networks, interconnecting networks. Um, and I think what is missing is that the nation state is a very contradictory institution, but it also represents a common good uh, institution. It's a, it's a social contract between different parts of the population. Um, because what you have in the virtual world is just the same. You know, it's, it's, it's not an ideal place. It's a place with hackers, you know, I, I mean, uh, bad hackers now, the, the kind of, you know, people who steal your credit cards and stuff. Um, so the, the, it's the interaction between the two, right? So we need strong commons institution. I, I'm trying to give you a few examples of what I see as potential new commons institutions. And then we need to work on the interrelationship between both. Because for example, you talk about WHO, you say they are corrupt. Why are they corrupt? They are corrupt because they are international. So Western countries don't have enough masks. So they want to preserve the masks for the doctors and the hospital systems. So they have an interest in not pushing masks. In Asia, where I live, everybody has masks. And so here, we, with the information we get is that masks work. In Belgium, I'm getting information that masks don't work. I checked it, masks actually work. But the corruption of the WHO is because the nation states are the only agents that have power there, right? So they're gonna negotiate. And there's a nice term, it's called super competent democracy. Um, and so I, I think we need more independence for the transnational expertise as a way of counterbalancing the, you know, the corrupt, selfish power of nation states. But we can't have a completely new system that ignores the nation state when the nation state is still dominant and powerful. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. I think uh, one, one insight that I'm driving from, uh, from um, this conversation is that we probably need to care about the local and uh, indigenous regional, you know, many, many terms we are using to, to describe the systems uh, where we as citizens, we can be more uh, actively engaged in, in producing on top of the commons. But yes. we, we also need to care about these interrelationship interrelational institutions that need to connect these nodes. Uh, 
Yes. And, and uh, that's you, the part that I'm more concerned about, you know, because yes, that's what we're like missing. We that's what we're missing. And you know what we had? We had it in the Middle Ages, and it was called the Catholic Church, right? This was an institution that existed in parallel with the with the regional powers that was organized on a European scale. Yeah. Um, and 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 so it it could identify with let's say the interests of Western civilization, not just, you know, not just a, a local perspective of the, of the regional Lord. Good point. This links well into the question that I had also, because uh, uh, earlier you spoke about this uh, mutation of consciousness that we, we can start to somehow see emerging where people are retired of this endless capitalism that is destroying the planet. So I see the link between what you mentioned in terms of this kind of radical transparency where you would be able to basically see the impact in real time of a decision, yes. right? So yes. what is the cultural shift in that mutation of consciousness? Like how could we nurture uh, citizens who could, you know, look for the right um, kind of choices? Well, I, I think it should start probably in school because... Um, you know, right now the modern school is an agent of alienation. Um, you know, so we decided in the 16th century in Europe that the body was separate from the mind, that the human was separate from nature, and all our institutions reinforce this. So that's what you learn in school. You know, you learn all the abstract knowledge but you don't know anything about cleaning your room and about growing stuff. Um, and for example, if you live in a country like Thailand, you would see that all the children of the farmers don't want to be farmers anymore, right? So there's a complete break between tradition and the relationship to the land local. And then when they go to, to the school, it's all about the nation state and science and engineering and you know, all good stuff, but you know what I'm trying to say, right? So, so I saw this documentary, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the city, but it's, uh, it's in Finland, I believe, and it's very in the north of Finland, and it's the first carbon positive uh, city in the world. And what you see there is that the children are involved in this. So the children think about heating, they think about echo, uh, they think about organizing their school in a way that, you know, it doesn't use so much energy. Uh, so they started building like, a, how to say, a warming system that works on the floor. Um, and and so, they, they're, so the kids there are inventing all kinds of things and so they're already growing up with a different kind of consciousness. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, that a large part of the answer is generational. It's at some point we are going to have to educate our children in an entirely different way from the way we were educated. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we are, we are largely lost <laughs> already in a way because we're so used to consumption and to all these separations. Um, so even if we are ideologically sympathetic to these you know, innovations, to, to be honest, in our daily lives, 
very few of us are actually living differently. Mm -hmm. And and so you know, changing our mind is the first step. But to actually change, you know, the whole body mind has to be uh, mobilized. And I think this this is not this is something you have to do. It's like a kind of programming of a worldview, and that has to be done very early. Well, uh, Michel, uh, I think uh, we touched a lot of ground. We we covered a lot of ground in this conversation. So I'm I'm happy to to offer a, a little bit uh, reflection to to wrap it up. That uh, I, I think we are we are witnessing again and again uh, the fact that uh, it's a generational issue. It's an educational one. Uh, and uh, uh, it looks, uh, I don't want to say that it looks uh, that, that we have, we, we understand what needs to be done, no? but uh, somehow more and more we understand that uh, aspects of the current system need to change. We need to re-embed uh, most of our economy to a regional or local scale, or we need to uh, you know, develop these regulations and we need to change the educational system. But sometimes it looks like the, 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 the world is, uh, at least it was, uh, uh, you know, on a trajectory where it was very hard to see, to stop for a moment and to rethink, you know, the new, the new systems. And, you know, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, I, 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 I was afraid to say that, but uh, Sometimes when I see that systems are recovering, rebounding after the corona first hit, let's say, first wave, I'm thinking, you know, maybe in the future uh, we, will, we will miss the corona times, you know, where we had to stay in, a, you know, stay at yeah. home. And so we about, can reset, uh, reset our thinking, <laughs> right? Exactly. And but, my, my question is, are we doing it or, or not? Yeah, I think we're doing it. I, 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 so... So here's the way for me to see it. You have a stable system and the only way to go to a new stable system is through a chaotic transition because societies are complex adaptive systems. So we are already since 2008 in the chaotic transition. And then what we need is, you know, ped pedagogical catastrophes. We, so we are going to learn because we are going to be shocked. And, and Corona is the first shock, is the first true shock. Maybe the second, if you count 2008. But Corona is a wake-up call. I, and I think that will have long-term effects. I think it, it is, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to go back to normal in some way. But in, I think in many ways, people have, have waken up, for example, to the fact that our state systems no longer work. That, you know, we don't have ventilators. We don't have masks. How is that possible? The most advanced Western countries are not coping with this pandemic as they should. And they lost yeah. you know, tens of tons of people because they were not organized in the proper way. Um, and a lot of people will lose their income. You know, they will have to rethink their place in the world. So I think there'll be actually, uh, this will be a multi-year shock. Yeah. And it will have effects, but it's not, you, you, it's not enough to have one shock. We'll have more, but maybe this is the first one. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, just as a closure, I, I think, um, you know, I was listening to, to Jamie Wheel a few days ago and uh, on, a, on a podcast, and, and yeah. I think he said something interesting that uh, sometimes, you know, that there's this conversation now around this idea of game B, also this idea that we need yes. a systemic transition towards a new civilization. And it's interesting to, to say that 
you know, parts of this new civilization are already here. And, uh, and uh, sometimes we uh, iconize, let's say, we, we imagine this transition as something very different, while in reality, uh, it's going to start by steps, you know, uh, through maybe yeah, this, yeah. The, this new dis this disruption that we are living to these days is going to push us in, a, in this direction, uh, a little step, and then another one, and then another one, and we end yeah. up maybe in a few years with a system that was completely different. So, so hopefully, I think that's yes. how it works. Yes, there is no... You know, there's, um, it, okay, so, you know, I, I was quite unhappy as a youth and then I went to the therapy and, you know, I did it for about seven years and there's not a single therapy where I felt this is it. And yet after seven years, I was different. You know what I mean? So I suddenly realized that I had changed. Yeah. But there was no, there was no like revolutionary moment and I think in the West, we are too focused on this idea of, you know, the revolution that comes from the French and the Russian revolutions. But actually, even the, you know, those industrial uh, revolutions were different in every country. And it was a religious civil war in, in England. It was, you know, the military class which took power in Germany. Uh, the Tsar that liberated the serfs in, uh, in Russia. So it took so many different forms, right? And I think this is going to be the same. We, you know, we shouldn't wait for this magic moment. Yeah. But all these little changes that sometimes we will feel, wow, now the logic is already different. Yeah, maybe, maybe Michelle, we just need to, to give up our uh, tendency to try to model everything because this transition <laughs> is going to be modeled very easily. Uh, so... <laughs> Michel, thanks very much. That was that was an amazing conversation, and uh, um, really, uh, we thank you for we thank you for this. Uh, and I'm sure our listeners will have lots of uh, food for thought, and uh, and for sure we had it. So so thanks again. Thank you, and thank you, thank you to Stina as well. Yeah, thank you so much. Really okay. Interesting. Okay. See you guys. Take care. Enjoy thank the you. freedom. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.